I wanted to ask about a very specific type of machine learning on machine learning attack, which surprised me. When I look at some of the resources on your website, it sounds like stealing machine learning models intellectual property is a little easier. Let's say let's say you have a targeted advertising model, and I want to steal it because you spent a billion dollars over a couple of years making it. Then uh, you know maybe you, maybe it's a Google targeted advertising model. If I want the inputs and outputs to that model, I, I spin up a Google account, I surf the web, and I start seeing what kind of ads are serving. I automate that and extrapolate that over many, many, many labels, I'll have the labels required to then ultimately rebuild a surrogate of that model that's trained to come up with the same results. And so, you know, with, with very little uh, resources, I have now recreated something that you spent quite a bit of time on the research and development. It sounds like the cost of stealing intellectual property just went way down. The Genealogy of Cybersecurity is a new kind of podcast. Here we'll interview notable entrepreneurs, startup advising CISOs, venture capitalists, and more. Our topic, the problems of cybersecurity, new attack surfaces, and innovation across the startup world. Welcome. I'm your cybersecurity analyst, Paul Shomo. Really nice to meet you. My name is uh, Chris Estito. I go by Tito. I'm uh, one of the co-founders here at Hidden Layer. I'm also the CEO. Um, I've been uh, in cybersecurity now for about uh, 15 years. About 10 years ago, I became very interested in the application of machine learning in the cybersecurity space uh, and really have been kind of working uh, and, and really dedicating the rest of my career towards sort of the bridge between those two uh, domains. And Well, first off, congratulations. Welcome to the show and congratulations for becoming a finalist at Innovation Sandbox. I mean, it's a huge uh, accomplishment. You. But actually, one of the things I want to ask you first is because you, you spent five years at Silence during the rise from the mid the mid to late 2010s, which were like the five good years to really build out one of the few, Silence was really one of the few vendors that actually delivered a primarily, you know, machine learning based approach to cybersecurity that succeeded. And it's, it's really underselling just to say succeeded because that approach really revolutionized antivirus. Could you, could you tell us a little bit about that, your work with them and, and, and why you do, if you can give us any insight into why they were successful where so many in that first wave of AI and ML weren't? Yeah, oh, great, great question. And I'll, I'll, I'll try and answer that in order there. So yeah, I, I spent a good amount of my time there. And it was, uh, so I ended up working what we call research and intelligence and ended up running it. And it was, that's really what we referred to as both uh, the data science and threat research parts of the organization. And, uh, you know, it was a, it was a, it was a really great um, organization, especially in terms of the willingness to pioneer new technologies for sort of stale problems that really we hadn't gotten right over a long amount of time. And I was excited there because one of the challenges I had always had on the antivirus side of things was the way in which we labeled uh, threats and the labels that we used uh, to, to inform our customers. I always thought we were, it, we being cybersecurity was far too superficial in that regard. We, we tend to use very scary labels like Trojan or virus and things that weren't really all that informative around kind of like, here's what you're up against. Here's what you should do about it. Uh, you know, this is what it means at a code functionality level, because um, I think uh, that, that those things are all very important. And so I think if you're if you're sort of a um, an antivirus company that's been around for a million years and you want people to think that you saved them from 10,000 things today, um, then, you know, vague, scary sounding labels are great. Uh, but if you really want to start helping someone understand kind of like, you know, what uh, true threats look like and, and what uh, true risk looks like as a result of them. Labeling is really important. That becomes ever more important when you start using machine learning models to identify threats because the model doesn't care. Like if you take something like ransomware from like a WannaCry uh, back in like 2017, um, you know, we as human beings go, okay, WannaCry is ransomware, but a machine learning model goes, well, it also has worm functionality and exploit capabilities and all of these other things. 
and, and doesn't really know why you care more about ransomware or ransomware label than any of those other code, code functions. So, um, so you know, it becomes even more important to start labeling uh, accurately. So uh, it was a really cool place for that. That's one of my favorite things about it was really trying to tell true stories behind functionality and capabilities there. Um, but uh, yeah, it was, it was a fantastic area. We really believed in machine learning. One thing you said in there particularly, you talked about the labeling of families, which people don't think about, but that's very kind of politicized for publicity oh, yeah. and the math doesn't care. So that's, that's kind of a, a cool perspective. I didn't think about of the truth telling of machine learning for categorizing. Yeah. Now, you also, you also brought up something else that you brought up uh, that the data set that you could get a hold of uh, a set of, I, I assume you're talking about malware samples. You know, one of the quirky things I think about AI companies, and we have this now is when I, when I listen to some people at, you know, whether it's Silence or a company that succeeded, they're always talking about building up, um, you know, artificial intelligence, they're building up models, they're, they're shoveling in data that's normalized and they're doing, you know, training, reinforcing, deep learning, et cetera, but they're building up an intelligence and it always involves exposing it to data. And a lot of startups, you can never tell where they get the data, but I guess with threat intelligence, uh, you actually did have a good data set to build from. Is that that's kind of what sounds like what you're alluding to? Yeah, I think that that's that's an incredibly important part of the equation here for sure. And I think that that's actually something that I like to talk about because some organizations tout how large their data sets are in terms of you know we can build the best machine learning because you know we have this vast data set we can train it on. And I think that's uh, that's important. But but more important than having a large data set is having a data set that's well representative of the problem space that you're trying to operate within. And, and generally speaking, to do that, it requires a large set. That set still needs to be very well representative of the real world. So um, in the case of like Silence and the models we were using, you can think about like you need a data set that represents all of the good parts of a Windows environment, all of the bad parts of, of what we're trying to stop. And that needs to be very well representative of what that model is expected to make decisions in terms of when it's, you know, when it's, when it's live, when it's making those real world product decisions. And so that's very important, right? You're, you're, your data needs to be more represented. It needs to be labeled very well. It needs to be very explicit on sort of what is good, what is bad. I'm glad I have you here because uh, there's a lot of people doing it wrong or not understanding what right looks like. Yeah, it's it's a very interesting new era and it, where before we were amassing, you know, I spent a lot of years in commercial software development. We were amassing lines of codes. We we're building features and architectures. But now it's we're amassing data. We're building up um, mm -hmm. neural networks large language models, we're, we're accruing intelligence basically through this process. Yeah, yeah, wildly different. And so you want to tell us a little bit about you, your, about hidden layer and how you fit into this. Cause I know you have something to do with machine learning on mach on machine learning attacks. And I think, why don't you give us a little overview and I'll ask you some questions. Yeah, absolutely. So, so hidden layer was really actually born out of an event that happened to us at silence. And that was actually an adversarial machine learning attack on, on our ML model that we use on Windows environments. And so you know, that was highly consequential. It was brand new. It was, uh, you know, in, in the 2019 timeframe, that was a pretty novel type of attack. And so, you know, after the dust settled, myself, my co-founders were also on the team with me at Silence. We said, you know what, this is going to be a problem for anybody who's deploying machine learning models uh, into their hardware or software products. And so we knew that there was going to need to be a dedicated type of security product for this, and because they're, they're, you know, there's, there's, so there's the need on the threat uh, landscape side that these threats are starting to evolve. And when you think about sort of just the extreme rate of adoption of AI and ML, whether it's uh, generative AI, some of these large language models that you're talking about, or whether it's things that are being developed in-house to, you know, solve problems, different decision-making engines that we're stepping into this space, 
um, it's getting deployed everywhere. It's in you know every industry, every company is a big data company now, and they all want to take advantage of what some of this technology can bring in terms of efficiencies or, or increasing quality. But um, you know, the security, like most of the time, it tends to be a little bit of an afterthought, and, and most of this is being built on open source code. And, and when you when you take all of that, um, you start to realize how vulnerable artificial intelligence is, both from like a code standpoint, like it's very easy to abuse. Um, you know, machine learning models hide hide malware and weights. We see this as well, and I can show this. We, we show quite often with the demo. Um, you know how abusable the technology is at a code level, as well as at a logical level. Somebody can infer information or data out of a model that you allow them to interact with because it is part of your product, like assignments. So, um, so all of that is is really um, you know why we created Hidden Layer. We have an entire platform now, multiple products dedicated to protecting models in real time, detecting and responding to attacks against them, as well as scanning them from an asset perspective to make sure they have compromised at the code level. Um, and that's, uh, that's what we're bringing to the marketplace today. Very cool. And you mentioned, obviously, machine learning and AI is taking off even for core business, whether you're a lumber distributor or you're head of retail mm-hmm. chains, you're developing machine learning models and AI. Is that what you're protecting or you're also, or are you protecting their cybersecurity products that, that have machine learning in it or is it both? Uh, it's everything. We, we protect uh, any anywhere where machine learning models are being used. So, um, you know, we, we like to say we're looking at it very much from like kind of the application inward. So versus other kind of maybe organizations or, or academic exercises that think about protecting the model um, and protecting the model sort of looking outward. We, um, you know, we wanted to make sure that we could build a solution that was non-invasive. We wanted to make sure we could we could secure your algorithm, we could secure your data, we can secure your product without having to reach in and touch all. So we actually took a lot of the same technologies that we worked on in the EDR space and applied it to machine learning. That's why we call our product machine learning detection and response. We look at behavioral patterns of interactions with those models, and that allows us to uh, to protect and understand when an attack is taking place without having to see any of your raw data or without having to see your algorithms themselves. Then we also have our scanner that does analyze the model. We actually hand the scanner off to you so you can use it. So that way we still don't have to see any of that IP and that allows us to work with many different organizations with a lot of search. Very cool, very cool. I wanna get into uh, MITRE Atlas because I, yeah. I, I, it sounds like you might have had some involvement with that. But first, I, I wanted to ask about a very specific type of machine learning on machine learning attack, which surprised me. So if you think about the idea of stealing code and then trying to reverse engineer this mountains of code, it seems like a lot of work. Uh, I was always surprised that you know the Chinese government would be uh, get a lot of publicity, whether it's overplayed or not, that they were they were trying to steal intellectual property or reverse engineer. It always seemed like a lot of work to do that, as opposed to just why don't you put the resources on innovation? But right. when I listen to the some of the st- when I look at some of the resources on your website, it sounds like stealing machine learning models intellectual property is a little easier because I can put forward my adversarial machine learning models to learn how your stuff works and steal it. Could you explain that? Yeah, absolutely. And there are many different techniques to do exactly that. So I think, you know, one common technique we talk about a lot is like even building a surrogate model. So looking at, uh, if you have a model, maybe it's in a hardware product, maybe it's in a software product, as long as somebody can interact with it, they can see the input side, they can see the output side, and they can ultimately build enough labeling on their own to retrain your model. Um, there, there's a lot of examples of that. So let's say, let's say you have a targeted advertising model and I want to steal it because you've spent a billion dollars over a couple of years making it, then uh, you know, maybe you, maybe it's a Google targeted advertising model. If I want the inputs and outputs to that model, I, I spin up a Google account, I surf the web and I start seeing what kind of ads you're serving me. If I automate that and extrapolate that over many, many, many labels, I'll have the, the labels required to then ultimately rebuild a surrogate of that model that's trained to come up with the same 
results. And so, you know, with, with very little uh, resources, I have now recreated something that you spend quite a bit of time on the research and development side. That's just sort of a, a quick example I came up with, you know, just, just right here on the spot. But there are many types of examples of building kind of a surrogate to, to essentially extract that model. There's also, you may extract it so then you can attack it offline and build an attack that you can then bring online, knowing that it'll be successful now. Um, and you don't have to construct it and learn like about decision boundaries and features and all those things live where somebody can see with like, you know, network anomaly detection as well. So there's many different ways to do that. And there's many different motivations as well. So it, it sounds to me, when, as you go through that, it sounds like the cost of stealing intellectual property just went way down, which means mm-hmm. that's probably going to be a big activity in the future. Yeah, probably the scariest thing that we've learned throughout all of this is just how easy these adversarial machine learning attacks are. And if, if you think back to kind of the early 2000s when we started seeing tools like Metasploit become available and now all of a sudden anybody who wants to conduct some sort of hack or attack really just has to interact with the menu, we are now at that spot with adversarial machine learning as well. There are over, we, we actually published some research about a, a month and a half ago showing 26 different automated adversarial machine learning attack tools that are available on GitHub. It, it's just as commoditized as any other type of attack now. So. Really, you don't have to be a data scientist. You don't have to be an expert developer. You really just need to want to attack a model and go and download some of these tools that are available. And uh, and they'll build these parameters. They'll they'll you know they'll they'll really work through with a significant sort of ease of use extraction on conducting these types of attacks. Yeah, that's interesting that you you brought that up. The twenty six tools because like Miter Attack already has a framework, Miter Atlas, which is a little surprising. Um, you know. SecDevOps doesn't have a framework, API attacks don't, but machine learning, attacking machine learning systems does. Did you have some involvement in that? Yeah, they're, they're a fantastic team over there. The, the MITRE team, Dr. Christina Ligotti and her team have, uh, have really built a uh, something that we all need to pay a lot of attention to, which is that, that MITRE Atlas framework. And just like MITRE attack in the EDR and endpoint protection space, uh, MITRE Atlas really is defining techniques and tactics that adversaries will use. Uh, in that adversarial machine learning space. And so we, we are involved with them now. Uh, we weren't involved with this inception, but we like to work with them both on sort of use cases of things that we're seeing in the wild, as well as how to continue to grow and develop that framework so that uh, organizations can, can you know, take advantage of that type of data and, and understand how to protect themselves. And we actually built that MITRE Atlas uh, code and terminology into every single part of our product. So, you know, one of our core beliefs is that data scientists should not have to be security operators. They shouldn't have to worry about whether or not what they're building is hardened enough. Uh, and, and, you know, they should be able to just continue to solve problems. And then likewise, security operators shouldn't have to be data scientists in order to protect ML assets of their organization. So we keep that in mind with everything that we build is how to empower both of those two different groups in their existing domains. And MITRE Atlas is an enormous tool for us to be able to do exactly that. So when we detect something and we put it out, you know, we have output, right? Sim, like Splunk or, or Datadog for these security operators. We do that with MITRE Atlas terminology so that they have that third-party resource to go understand exactly what's going on and the attacks. And vice versa, when data scientists see, hey, somebody's performing an inference attack against our model, they can go out to MITRE Atlas and see in, in that exact same language where everyone can understand. So it's a very, very powerful tool when it comes to sort of defining this problem space. And it, you mentioned inference attack. There's all kind of stuff I, I saw there that gives you a new vocabulary, which is an important part of talking about it, but also thinking clearly about it. The question I had, though, is is MITRE jumping the gun and getting really excited about a future uh, attack surface? Or are we really seeing this impact companies now that it just hasn't been publicized? Because you mentioned 26 uh, adversarial machine learning tools, and I'm not really hearing a lot about that. Is this just undercovered by the media? 
So there's, there's a few reasons for that. And the answer is yes, it is absolutely here is absolutely happening in the wild. I think there's, there's a, there's a handful of reasons you're not hearing a whole lot about it. Number one, I think in the security world, we've gotten very used to ransomware, which is very loud, very in your face that nobody isn't aware that they've been dealing with a ransomware attack. Uh, they can't get any of their files. There's a ransom note. Um, if you think back to prior to ransomware, when we had to look for things like backdoors for things like root kits that were existing a little bit under the radar, th these types of adversarial ML attacks can be a lot more akin to that uh, environment where you really have to go looking for this type of attack. If somebody is skewing your model over time, uh, poisoning something or has built something into that model at the code level, um, you need to understand that that's happening. You need to look for it. So I think part of it is the organizations really haven't embraced a way, and there's really not that many that exist. Hidden Layer is one of the first, um, or actually is the first, and there's others coming coming around now as well. But, but it's, it's, it's definitely a problem that if you're not looking for, you may not be aware that it's happening. The other side of that is regulation. Um, you know, we, we have some strict regulation in place from different uh, agencies on what you need to do and what you need to divulge to the public uh, when it comes to things like data that's been exfiltrated from your network, data that's come out of a um, a database, but actually all of that is very far behind when it comes to ML operations. So we're working with some agencies there to sort of uh, re-up kind of what the requirements should be if some information is inferred out of your database or, or, or sorry, your ML pipeline and how you should tell your shareholders or the public or something along those lines. So, um, you know, I think the UK is a little a little in front of us right now on that, but we need to, we certainly need to play catch up there as well. So it's a little bit of a mix. It's, it's organizations not knowing when they've been exploited and it's the ones that do know currently right now are not under any major obligation to tell everybody. So, um, you know, we need to work on that from a few different areas, but, uh, but it's, I can tell you with, with absolute confidence that it's something that is, uh, you know, pretty widespread at this point. Yeah. Well, hopefully this podcast gets some information about that out there because uh, it's very fascinating. And the fact that a whole MITRE framework Atlas came about and is this is just isn't part of the, the public discourse is a, is a huge thing. So I want to get into a little more detail about how your product works so you, you or, or how it's deployed so we can kind of picture the way it works. So you're part of the AI application security space. That's what that's what Gardner calls you. And uh, when you when you're when you're securing applications, it's wildly different than what a lot of us are used to chasing malware. And so for what we've seen with the, the app sec and the, the, you know, the development operations, securing those sec DevOps, et cetera, there's all these products that have shift left into code doing static analysis. And I, you already mentioned poisoning training sets. So that would be like during the development of ML. So there's that, that, that bucket. Then there's the dynamic testing where they, you know, when you're testing, I guess, like in QA for vulnerabilities. But then there's also this other bucket that really frustrates me because they keep changing the words for it. I think it's uh, you're you're baking into the application in the production environment. Runtime is typically what, but now they're saying interactive. Yep. The, the buzzword keeps changing. So there's the static while you develop, dynamic while you're testing it, and then this other runtime interactive when it's deployed. Are you in one of those categories or more than one? What do you look like in terms of deployment? Yeah, great question. So we have a product in two of those different categories. So our, our machine learning detection and response product, um, you know, if, if, if the term is runtime in the uh, in the apps in the application world, the term would be like inference time in the ML operations. So this would be when your model that's that's baked into your product or or your you know, pipeline is making a decision. That's what we're protecting, and that's really important because that tends to be exposed as well. Um, so if if you are, for instance, like let's say you have a model that's protecting a fraud use case, you have a model that's detecting credit card transactions and whether or not they're fraudulent. Um, that's in real time that's happening to, you know, potentially interrupt a transaction that may be fraud. Um, but it's also highly exposed because as, as an attacker, all I have to do is go steal some credit cards from the dark web and start performing transactions that are 
you know, very measured and potentially even using some reinforcement learning myself on trying to understand those, those fraud model decision boundaries. And so, um, you know, I have all the inputs and I have all the outputs to that model. So that's a really good use case for, for our product because that's something that protects in real time. So that's, that's that kind of real time solution. And that's where we're, we're kind of heavily differentiated uh, in that regard. Because there are some other folks out there that again are helping you on like complexity or robustness of your model or essentially hardening your model to be a little bit more robust against these types of attacks. We don't love that approach because it's, it's, it's highly invasive. It makes your model more expensive. There's not, there's not a ton to, to, uh, to really, um, you know, distribute and, and extrapolate out from there. And if you have a lot of different use cases in your organization, uh, it requires a whole bunch of different solutions there. So we, we like the, the generic sort of MLDR solution that, that can really protect you across the board. Now that's, that's all decision time. Now we also have that model scan here. This can be, um, really while you're building or while you're, bringing ML assets into your organization. And so at the moment, you know, we have found hundreds of examples, over 500 examples of compromised models out there on these big model repositories. Think about OpenAI or Hug and Face or sites like that. We found a lot of compromised models. And so as a data scientist, if you pull one of those models down in your, into your environment, antivirus isn't scanning that, EDR is not going to pick up on it. And so you need to understand that you didn't bring anything unsafe into that organization. So you could, you could say that's more training and development stage for the model because Know, I would say roughly 90% of, of, of model builds out there start from some sort of pre-trained state. And typically that's from some of those models. So let's say you're building a, uh, you know, a facial recognition model. You're probably starting with some sort of image classification model to start with. Like maybe you're pulling like ResNet down from, from Microsoft and then you're, then you're training from that point on um, because it's just a, it's just a much, much better, more efficient way for data scientists to move on. So there's a lot of transfer learning. There's a lot of, of pre-trained, models being passed around and it's a really good opportunity for attackers to hide things. In there. So, um, so it, it, that regard, that model scanner that we have, that's a little bit more on the, kind of on the transfer learning side for, in terms of ML ops, I don't know how we, we could say maybe that's on kind of like the supply chain side for, sure. yeah. for, um, for application security or for, for any other cybersecurity domain. Um, but, uh, so we, we exist in those two components. We have other um, solutions that are, um, that we're working on right now for things like, Hey, when you're building a model, if you build it using these parameters, you may see, be susceptible to attack XYZ or some recommendations, but our, our major differentiator is being able to stop these attacks in real time, as well as on the supply chain side, making sure you're not either a cause and, and issuing a compromised model out in the world or, or receiving anything in your organization that's already been compromised. So many vendors at, who are looking at behaviors and looking at live attacks and actually you know, going back and forth with the adversary tend to put services on top of it. And I see already, it sounds like you have some kind of, is it a managed service or some type of service for people doing, I guess that would be IR for machine learning system attacks. That's exactly right. Yeah. We do have a selection of services we offer and it's all really, um, you know, based on sort of the fact that this is a very new space for a lot of people to consider. And so um, we do, we do some AI red teaming where we can show you kind of what, uh, what's going on with your model where it's exposed. Uh, we can do that, you know, with, uh, um, uh, just some level of, of uh, customization towards what these organizations think are important. Typically, when we start with some of the customers that we've already worked with, we just come in and we do like a, a threat assessment overall, and we say, you know, here's where you're most exposed. Here's where your models uh, do have, uh, you know, potential for what types of attacks and, and that kind of thing. Before we go in, and then we also offer trainings and some educational services. We have trainings where we'll, you know, we'll teach security folks more on the data science side. We have trainings where we'll teach the data science folks more on the security side of the house and get everybody kind of plugged into solving that same problem. Because at the end of the day, we want to empower these data scientists to continue building, to continue developing. We, we don't want to slow them down, but we want, to, we want them to understand that, you know, their models and their efficacy is going to be protected, uh, you know, from the outside world. And that's what we're really here to do, is really continue that, 
incredible adoption of AI without letting threat actors slow down. Makes sense. Sounds like you have the, the full spectrum of what, what we need for a brand new uh, attack surface. How do we how do we find you and your uh, your company Hidden Layer on the web? Yeah, the best place to reach us is hiddenlayer.com. You can make a request there to check a look at the uh, take a look at the product. Um, we're also going to be at RSA this year, so if you're if you uh, if you're going to be uh, be there, you can sign up to come see us uh, on the website as well. We have an RSA 2023 tab, um, but we have uh, um, plenty of different ways to get in contact there if you want to see a demonstration or you want to reach out to us. We're also on LinkedIn with uh, Hidden Layer and then Twitter at Hidden Layer Sec. So uh, plenty, plenty of different ways to catch us on either social or on our website. Well, good stuff. Thanks so much, Chris. And this is very fascinating, very cutting edge. And I could see your differentiator is being first. And this is an area I'm going to be watching closely and learning about uh, MITRE ATLAS. I think we all should should look at this, uh, this brand new area of cybersecurity. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, Paul, very much. Appreciate it today.